Hopefully that's good to go. If you have a Bible with you, I'd like to invite you to open up to our passage this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. It's my understanding that during the month of February, um, as the members of Ascension, you're considering uh, the folks to nominate for the offices of elder and deacon for Positions of leadership in the church and in the passage that we're looking at this morning, uh, it's one of those key passages that from which we get this idea of a servant leader. So I think it's a fitting passage for us to consider together um, as a church this morning. I hear now the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray before we dive in. Father God, we come now to your word, and we pray that you would speak to us through it, that you would minister to our hearts and souls um, this morning through your scripture. Lord, we lack wisdom. And discernment as to the right character of those whom should be nominated and elected to positions of leadership in your church. And so we pray that you would help us get a better sense of uh, servant leader um, as we consider this word from you this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. As a master teacher, uh, Jesus would frequently use questions to uncover his disciples' underlying beliefs and assumptions about God and about his kingdom. And in today's passage, Jesus asks uh, a question in response to this bold request from two of his closest disciples who were brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. James and John were bold men. Boldness was such a key characteristic of these two Brothers from Galilee that Jesus actually nicknamed them the sons of thunder. 
which is a great nickname, right? To give the sons of thunder or the sons of rage. After the sons of thunder corner Jesus, they get him to the side. They ask him to do for them whatever they ask of him. These brothers shamelessly ask Jesus to cut them what is essentially a blank check. And Jesus, who's familiar with these two brothers, who's been spending the past three years working with them and walking with them, entertains their request. He he asks them in return, what do you, James and John, what do you guys want me to do for you? He's willing to hear what they have to say. And the, the sons of thunder boldly ask Jesus to grant one of them to sit at his right hand and the other at his left hand in his glory. Essentially, James and John ask Jesus to promote them, to promise that when he becomes king, he will promote the two of them to the highest positions of honor, power, and glory in his kingdom. Why do James and John choose this time, this moment, to ask Jesus, ask this of Jesus? They ask this of Jesus because of where they are headed. Mark tells us just a few verses earlier than the passage we read this morning that Jesus and his disciples are finally walking on the road to Jerusalem. This is it. This is the moment that all of Jesus' disciples have been waiting for so Eagerly, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, the city of David, to establish his kingdom as the messianic king. Mark describes for us uh, in those verses how the disciples were feeling as they saw Jesus lead the way in front of them on the road to Jerusalem. He says they were amazed and those who followed were afraid, amazed and afraid. Wonder and fear, anticipation and worry. These are the emotions that the disciples of Jesus carry within them as they follow Jesus towards the city of Jerusalem. As Jesus and his disciples walk along the road to Jerusalem, he tells them for the third time what exactly will happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. He tells them that he will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and he'll be condemned to death and delivered over to the Romans and be crucified, humiliated and die. And that on the third day, he will rise from the dead. Yet despite Jesus's detailed description of what awaits him in Jerusalem, the disciples still don't really understand what Jesus was saying. They assume he must have been talking figuratively. Like we often do ourselves, the good news, we're headed to Jerusalem, is what they hear. And the bad news, what Jesus says, this is what's going to happen to me when I get there, goes in through one ear and out the other. You see all that James and John, as some of Jesus' closest disciples can think of, as they're approaching the city of Jerusalem, is the honor and the glory and the power they will receive as Members of Jesus' inner circle, his closest friends and disciples, his inner ring, along with Peter. James and John are giddy with excitement. The sons of thunder, they can't wait to, to grab swords and spears and fight along the Messiah as he raises up an army to destroy the Romans and to free Jerusalem once and for all. 
They're itching to be promoted to the highest possible ranks within the Messiah's empire. And their bold request is actually very revealing. It reveals what what these two men really want, what they were really after. What did they really want? James and John wanted to be recognized and respected above the other disciples. James and John, they see Jesus as their golden ticket to get what their hearts truly long for. Honor, power, and respect. As hardworking Galilean fishermen, James and John would have likely been looked down upon by all the other disciples and other folks as uneducated, as backward and unsophisticated. This was their chance to make mom and dad proud. This was their chance to show the world just how far two nobodies from the Galilean seaside like them could go to the right hand and the left hand of the Messiah himself. James and John's bold request reveals that in many ways they loved what they thought Jesus could get them, honor, power, and glory, far more than they actually loved Jesus himself. Aren't we just as capable of seeing Jesus like James and John do? Aren't we just as capable of seeing Jesus as our ticket to get the things we are convinced we deserve, things we believe we're entitled to? Aren't we just as capable of treating Jesus as a means to an end rather than an end unto himself? But what I want to do this morning as we consider our passage is compare and contrast what uh, culture teaches us about honor and glory and power with what Jesus, and compare that with what Jesus himself teaches his disciples about these three things, about glory, honor, and power. So first we're going to look at what culture says about honor, and second, what Jesus has to say about honor. Our first point is what culture says about honor. Jesus' response to the bold request of the sons of thunder that he guarantee their place at his right and left hand exposes, in many ways, their complete and utter lack of understanding of who Jesus is and what his mission was as the Messiah. Jesus replies to the request in verse 38, first with a statement, and then he asks some questions. First, he states, you do not know what you're asking. James and John, you guys don't know what you're asking. And then he asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? When Jesus asks James and John whether they're able to drink the same cup as him, he's drawing on this Old Testament metaphor that was frequently used to express commitment to another person. And so if you're willing to share in another person's cup, if you're willing to share their cup, It was a way of expressing your willingness to stick by them through thick and thin until the very end. You're willing to share their fate no matter what happens. When Jesus asked James and John about whether they're able to be baptized with the same baptism as him, it also serves as that metaphor. I'm willing. Are you willing, James and John, to follow me to the very end? Take my cup and be baptized in my baptism. In short, Jesus is asking James and John whether they're committed to following him all the way to the very end, no matter what. And James and John, they can't help but interpret Jesus' question 
as a test of their commitment to fight bravely alongside him as he liberates Jerusalem from Roman oppression. And so they're, they're gunning for it. They're like, yes, we can do that, Jesus. We are so able to stick by you to the very end. And Jesus confirms that James and John will, in fact, at some point in time, bear the same suffering, drink from his cup and be baptized in his baptism. However, he leaves the authority to determine who will sit at his right and left hand to the Father alone. And after James and John hear Jesus' response to their bold request, which probably disappointed them on some level, the ten other disciples get what? They get angry. They become indignant at James and John. They start ragging on the two brothers from the Sea of Galilee. Right? They, uh, Mark writes in verse 41, And when the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Tensions start rising among Jesus' disciples, maybe they're asking them, who do you guys think you guys are? You guys really think you're that good of a disciple? Uh, that you think you're better than the rest of us? You see, the other disciples of Jesus, they shared the same ambitions as James and John. They too were imagining what positions they would be appointed to and what honors awaited them in Jerusalem. And yet they lacked the simple shamelessness of James and John to just ask Jesus so directly. All of Jesus' disciples were looking in one way or another to ride the coattails of the Messiah into positions of power and glory and honor in his kingdom. And so with his disciples on the cusp of brawling, fists raised, tempers flaring, Jesus steps in. He intervenes. He summons his disciples to himself and he uses this tense and divisive situation among his disciples as a teachable moment. He directs his disciples' attention in verse 42 to how power and honor and glory are typically viewed within the Greco-Roman culture surrounding them. According to the norms of Greco-Roman culture, the man at the top of the social hierarchy was entitled to use his power and authority of his position to dominate, to oppress and exploit those underneath him. The Greek word that Jesus uses to describe the the power uh, dynamics of Greco-Roman culture is one that conveys what one one scholar describes as the oppression and the uncontrolled exploitation of power, the flaunting of authority rather than its benevolent exercise. Pagan culture taught that power, glory, and honor was reserved for those who were the strongest and the most successful, the ones who were able to come out on top and that once you got to the top, you were fully entitled to use your power to oppress, to dominate, and to exploit those beneath you. Culture taught, teaches that honor is won through fierce competition and maintained through oppression. And you can see this fundamental assumption about how honor, power, and glory work, uh, even in the games that we like to play as children. Um, uh, my family, we didn't actually go on vacation very often. Um, my parents are both school teachers, and so we would spend uh, most of our summers um, at the pool, at our community pool. I have two younger brothers, and so one of the games that we liked to play a lot was a game called King of the Hill. King of the Hill. It's a great game. Maybe you've played it before. Um, 
The, while the exact rules for each game could vary, uh, the objective of the game remains generally the same. One person, dubbed the king, fights to stay at the top of a hill for as long as he possibly can, while the other players attempt to drag them down. And whoever is able to topple the king first becomes the king themselves. They must fight to then maintain their position of authority and dominance until they too find themselves pushed back onto the ground. And so this game will continue round after round uh, until someone gets hurt, which often happens. People start crying, and then we find a different game to play. Both the pagan cultures of Jesus' day and our own modern culture teaches us that honor is won through fierce competition and maintained through oppression. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, James and John jump on what they see as a great opportunity to get ahead of the other disciples by making Jesus promise them the highest positions of power and authority available in his kingdom. They want to make sure they get their seat at the table, that they get promoted to his cabinet before they get to the city. And the ten other disciples, they get angry and indignant at James and John for their bold attempt to gain this edge above them. In the discipleship competition. Jesus, however, exposes to his disciples how they were actually behaving exactly like their Roman oppressors. Like the Romans, they too were vying for power and honor and control. In effect, Jesus says to his disciples, you guys know how bad the Romans are towards you. But guess what? You're no different. You're behaving the exact same way. You're acting like the Romans yourselves. All of the disciples were looking to Jesus as their shortcut up the ladder, their golden ticket to the very tippy top. None of them were immune from what we often find in ourselves, a desperate longing to be recognized and respected by others. We're no different from the disciples because we too find ways to feel superior to one another, we too can treat Jesus more as a means to get what we want rather than an end in Himself. We can just as easily fall into the trap as James and John did of convincing ourselves, pastors are especially guilty of this, that we care about Jesus' glory. That's all we talk about. Grant us, notice what James and John say. They say, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory, Jesus. But whose glory do James and John really care about? They care about their own. And so do we, oftentimes. Let's now consider our second point. What Jesus has to say about honor, glory, and power. How then does Jesus' view of, of honor, glory, and power compare and contrast with how human cultures throughout our history have typically understood these things? How honor is achieved by means of fierce competition and maintained by means of domination and oppression and control. After identifying what culture teaches about honor, notice what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 43. He says, But it shall not be so among you. But it shall not be so among you. Jesus strictly forbids his disciples from embracing and accepting the Greco Roman culture's approach to power, honor, and glory. The abuse of power, though acceptable in Greco-Roman culture, shall not be so among you, Jesus says to his disciples. Using power to dominate, to control, to manipulate, to oppress, 
and exploit others is fundamentally at odds with Christ's kingdom. You see, Jesus here flips the Greco-Roman culture's approach to power and glory completely on its head. He introduces a radically different ethic of greatness and honor to his disciples. In Jesus' kingdom, honor is, is achieved not by clawing your way to the top, but by climbing your way down to the bottom. In Jesus' kingdom, honor is achieved through service and sacrifice, not oppression and domination. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 43 to 44, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must be first among you must be slave of all. Servants and slaves were at the very bottom of the social hierarchy in the ancient Greco-Roman world. They had no rights. They were despised by everyone above them. They were the lowest of the low. And you always, people always wanted to have the lowest, a person lower than them, someone that they could look down Upon and feel superior to. And here, King Jesus is telling his disciples that greatness in his kingdom is achieved not by climbing up the hill, but by climbing down it. Not by climbing up the ladder, but by climbing down the ladder. Not by showing how much better you are than everyone else, but by serving everyone else as their servant. True honor, Jesus says, is found at the bottom in self sacrificial service to others. In order to get a sense of just how countercultural Jesus' uh, approach to honor, power, and glory is, uh, I found that it's often helpful to apply it to a specific cultural context. Uh, I am a third generation Korean American, which means my grandparents uh, immigrated to the United States uh, in 1970, so our family's been here for about 50 years or so. Um, and I want to apply what Jesus is teaching here about honor, glory, and power to my parents' cultural context, a first-generation immigrant Korean home around 1970. So we're going back in time. This is what the power dynamics were like in in their home. Uh, In the cultural context uh, my parents grew up in, everyone knew exactly who was at the top, who was in charge. Who was it? Dad. Dad was in charge. Dad occupied the highest position of authority in the Korean immigrant household. As such, he had the final and complete say in everything. It was his right as the head of the household to demand his wife and children's absolute and unquestioning obedience and respect. The power dynamic was crystal clear in a first-generation Korean immigrant household. So long as dad put food on the table, he was entitled to demand and receive honor and respect regardless of his behavior. He could have an affair. He could drink excessively. He could gamble recklessly. But as long as there was still food on the table, he was to be honored and to be respected in the Korean culture. But now I want you to imagine that the father of a first-generation Korean immigrant family in 1970 meets Jesus. He becomes a Christian. How then would his newfound faith in Jesus change in any way his approach to leading and guiding his family? Can he carry on as he did before? Can he use his position of authority at the top which his culture gives to him and grants to him? 
Can he use that position to dominate and to oppress and to control his wife and children? Can he lord his authority over his family? He cannot. For Jesus himself said to his disciples, it shall not be so among you. As a follower of Jesus, the Korean immigrant father must slowly learn to embrace an understanding of power, honor, and glory that is at odds with his culture. Rather than demand honor and respect, he must devote himself to serving his wife and children. Rather than demand power, he must take the lowest position of all, even lower than his children. Rather than demand honor and respect, he must lay down his rights, the things his own culture entitles him to, and humbly serve his family. In a Korean immigrant household, dad would never say sorry. Dad would never admit he was wrong. Uh, And children and their wives were expected to completely obey and listen to him. And so this is just, this illustrates just how countercultural Jesus' approach to honor, power, and glory is. It's actually absurd (laughs) in a lot of ways. It's unimaginable, it's unrealistic, and at the same time, it's, it's beautiful. What brighter witness to Christ and his kingdom could you imagine then having a Korean immigrant father whose own father never apologized for anything, never admitted weakness or wrongdoing in the slightest? Well, how amazing would it be to hear him say, I'm sorry, because of his faith, because of his relationship with Jesus? What brighter witness to Christ and his kingdom could you imagine than, than seeing a father as such treat his wife and children with humility and service and love? His life would, in fact, become a living testimony that something indeed has changed within him. His life would become a living testimony that God has transformed him from the inside out. That he indeed is not the same man he used to be. True honor, Jesus teaches, is found not at the, bo- at the top, but at the bottom in humility and service. Uh, Jesus' disciples likely struggled with Jesus' teachings about honor, as those who, like first-generation Korean immigrant fathers, were culturally entitled in their own families to honor and respect simply by merit of their position within society and the home. Jesus' teaching would have sounded, in, in many ways, I think, ridiculous to them. I doubt that they understood much of what he was teaching. But like any good teacher, Jesus himself knew this already about his students. He knew that they wouldn't immediately understand what he was trying to get across to them. He knew that what his disciples needed was not just to be told, but to be shown what he was trying to teach them. They needed to see with their own eyes where true honor is to be found. And Jesus, as their teacher, will set that example for them. He will gain honor not by clawing his way up, but by climbing his way down. Jesus leaves his disciples with an expectation that he himself will show them where true greatness and honor is found in verse 45 when he says to them, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus knew that when he got to Jerusalem, he would not wear a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. Jesus knew that when he got to Jerusalem, he would not destroy the Romans, but be nailed to a Roman cross. 
Jesus knew that when he got to Jerusalem, that James and John and the other disciples, as passionate and courageous as they might be, would desert him. And yet Jesus continued forward. He led the way to Jerusalem, his face set like a flint to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John, along with the other disciples, saw Jesus as their golden ticket to glory, honor, power for themselves. They loved what they thought Jesus could give them, more so than they loved Jesus himself. And by using Jesus as a means to an end, the disciples were racking up a debt for themselves. They were racking up a debt before God by attempting to use Jesus to get what their hearts truly wanted that wasn't him. They were racking up a spiritual debt with God, which they could never hope to repay through their selfishness, through their arrogance, through their pride. They were digging themselves deeper and deeper in a hole. Like Jesus' disciples, you and I also have also owed God a debt we could never repay. It was the debt of our sin and our rebellion against him. Every vow that we've broken, every harsh word we've spoken, every injustice we've committed, every lie we've told, every mistake We've made, and the Father asked, Who will pay? Who will pay for these debts? And Jesus the Son replied, I will pay. I will pay their ransom with the infinite value of my life. And pay it, Jesus did. He paid for everything. You see, Jesus, as the Son of God, was at the very top of the hierarchy. He was the second person of the Trinity, he occupied the highest rank. And status and position of authority and power and honor and glory in the whole universe. How much higher can you go than the Father's own right hand? But what did Jesus, the Son of God, come down to earth to do? Did he come to earth to use his authority to dominate and to oppress and to exploit those beneath him? What did he come down to earth to do? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life As a ransom for many. Jesus paid your ransom. He's paid for everything. He's paid even for your using of him. Only as a means to get what you want. Rather than him himself. He's paid even for your selfish ambitions. He's paid even for your blind hypocrisy. He's paid for your sin. So that now with Jesus. Not only as your example. But as your savior. You too can begin. To embrace the ethics of his kingdom. So that you too can start climbing down, 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 where true honor is found. Jesus drank the cup of God's judgment, reserved for you down to the very last drop, so that you can now come to his table and enjoy the cup of God's favor, his acceptance, and his love. Your debts are no more. Your ransom has been paid. So start climbing down where true honor is to be found. As you consider whom to nominate for the offices of elder and deacon this month as a church, I want to encourage you to to look down. Look down beneath you for the men who've been serving you this whole time already, humbly, sacrificially. Look for the men who, like Jesus, exhibit true honor according to his teaching. Look for the men who serve at the bottom because they know the love of a Savior who climbed down to the bottom for them. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for this teaching of Jesus on the nature of true honor, power and glory in his kingdom. And we thank you that 
Uh, we are now the recipients uh, of your grace through the work of Christ, that he was willing to come down to live a life of service, to give his life as a ransom for our sins so that we can now enjoy uh, eternal fellowship and life with you as our God. We give you thanks, Lord. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, at this time, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. To Oh, no, we're going to do the confession of uh, faith together. So uh, let's now continue uh, in our service with our confession of faith from the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we can now rise and stand. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. At this time, let's uh, pass the peace of Christ to one another.